I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What to expect when you're expecting was first published in 1984. It's now in its fifth edition, and it has birthed a whole shelf full of what to expect books. It's also a website, a mobile app, and a movie. Now, we heard about what to expect when you're expecting when Maggie was on the way, but we didn't buy it. We decided that we would uh, trust living witnesses to parenting instead, although they sometimes contradicted each other, but we figured, we figured it out somehow. Amazon suggests buying two other books with what to expect when you're expecting. One is called The Expectant Father, the other is called, dude, you're going to be a dad. Well, it seems that first-time fathers need a lot more help than their partners do. And I confess that I went out and bought the first edition of The Expectant Father right after we found out we were going to be parents. I don't think I ever got around to reading it. I gave it to somebody in the congregation. The trouble with self-help or couple help books is, well, life very rarely goes by the book. Pregnancy very rarely goes by the book. And when you go into the labor room or the birthing suite, you don't have time to consult the guidebook to make sure everything is proceeding according to the experts. Well, we have the same problem with the Bible. Life seldom proceeds along the straight and narrow path the scriptures say it should. Our handbook isn't like what to expect when you're expecting. It doesn't have a table of contents at the front or an index at the back. We can't just dip into it, check a list, find the question that we want to ask, and then turn to the right page and find the answer. And if we look into the Gospels, we see Jesus rarely gives a straight answer to a simple question. He doesn't explain everything. Sometimes he just says, to paraphrase, uh, you go read the Old Testament. And other times he says, to paraphrase, you go figure it out for yourselves. But Jesus tells his closest friends on the night before his crucifixion, what they can expect to happen after he goes away, and what they should do as they live expecting his return. And we heard some of that advice this morning from the Gospel of John. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we have five chapters of what to expect, or at least what to do while we're expecting, waiting for Jesus. Some of it is quite specific to the first disciple situation, but most of it is for us, too. So we get a little scrap of chapter 13 today. But the frame around that little episode is very important. Because just before Jesus speaks, Judas goes out to set his business in motion. And just after it, when Jesus says again he's going away and his friends can't go there with him, at least not yet. Peter, as Peter is prone to do, just blurts out, 
that he will follow Jesus anywhere, even to death. But Jesus knows Peter too well. He knows what Jesus or what Peter will do before dawn, before the rooster crows. In our brief gospel reading, Jesus speaks of his glorification, and I wonder if they think he's talking about some kind of victory soon to come. Maybe he won't die after all. But he's talking about his death, fulfilling his purpose, doing what has to be done. He'll come back. He's told them that many times. He'll come back for a little while, but they'll have to wait for him to come again and take them home, and they'll have to wait a long time. So, while they're waiting, he gives them a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. Is that all? Is that the only instruction we have? Well, really, that's what it adds up to, and that's a lot. But the commandment isn't just to love, it's to love with a kind of love that will prove to those who take notice that they are his disciples. To show the world a way of life that is so attractive and a loving community that is so inviting that they just want to come and join in. And that's what people who follow Jesus are supposed to do while we wait. And years later, another John will write from prison to friends who are suffering persecution for upsetting the social order of the Roman Empire. They will not say Caesar is Lord, and they also don't care about divisions and distinctions, class, rank, or citizenship. They dare to be different, and for following Jesus and for loving indiscriminately, this minority, this powerful, powerless, actually, powerless minority, this pacifist minority, is labeled a threat to the whole empire. Imagine that. Imagine a minority being labeled a threat to the whole nation. (laughs) This John wants to encourage and comfort and renew their hope and redeem their deaths. And if they die for being who they are, they are not lost. And so we find the book of Revelation confusing, partly because most people who read it today try to wring out of it some word, some assurance that they're on the right path, that they'll win in the end. And so they twist and distort a simple message first sent to people in a very particular context with very particular words that will help them as they wait for release and relief from oppression. But most Christians today don't bother reading it at all. And so we we miss the lasting message to us that God and good 
will prevail over empires and evils in any age. The one thing Revelation doesn't give us is a timeline that tells us how long we'll have to wait, when the world as we know it will end and we won't have to wait anymore. The last chapters of the book, the last two chapters, give us a vision of the world as God would have it be. And it is a stark contrast, an intentional stark contrast to the pomp and circumstance of Rome. But it's also in stark contrast to the world as we know it today. But the thing about visions, glimpses of the future, a chance to look to the edge of eternity, like the visions of the Old Testament prophets or Jesus' words about the kingdom of God, they're given to God's people so that we can see what is in the light of what God intends. So we can see the now in the light of what is to come. Vision to work, to make this world in the here and now more like the world God created and intended and will ultimately renew. Part of the problem is that most Christians today have lost the sense of expectation. After generations of waiting, we're tired, and so we don't think or speak very much about the promise, whether or not it turns out to look like the imagery that's used in the New Testament, the promise of a fulfillment to come, of a resolution to come, of a meeting, a final meeting with God to come, of a, a return to us of Jesus the Christ. We've lost that. And so we don't sit here with expectation that God is going to do something. And that then spills over into the here and now, that we don't sit here with the expectation that as we look at the world around us, we will see what God is doing here and now. But we're given these visions, these images, these invitations to get to work, to make this world in the here and now more like what God intends. Hear these words. The home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them and they will be God's peoples. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And with this vision of God's will, and not in detail, the dimensions of the holy city are ridiculous. They describe a cube, kind of like the Borg planet ship in Star Trek The Next Generation. I don't know if anybody gets that, but that was very important to me when it was on television. Not in detail, not the vision not in detail, but in intention, in purpose. And from the vision, we get a pretty good idea of what we can do while we're waiting. Make God's presence known. Live God's love for the world. And that includes comforting those who have good reason to weep, to be present with those who grieve and those who are dying. Don't fear the new and strange. Instead, look for God in it and dare to imagine how God can work through it. And love one another. 
as Jesus loved us. So everyone will know we are his disciples. Now we can take all of those words literally and so try to excuse ourselves. We'll say, well, we can't love exactly as Jesus loved and loves. Come on. Are we supposed to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others? Are we supposed to volunteer to die on crosses? We can take the book of Revelation literally and say, well, God is going to relieve all suffering one day. God will correct and avenge all injustices. Why should we be concerned with the problems of others then? And God will one day make us a whole new world. Why should we be concerned about the planet and climate change and global warming and species extinction? Maybe that's all in God's plan. And two fairly recent presidents of the United States have believed that, and two secretaries of the EPA. So we can just sit back and wait and wait for Jesus to come back, for God to bring all things to an end and make all things new. And we can say that Jesus only told us to love one another. He didn't say anything about others. Well, actually he did, many times. I look back over my ministry. One of my friends posted on social media just last night the anniversary of her ordination. And I've been, I was ordained earlier in the same year, so 36 years ago. And I've been waiting a long time since I was a student at Knox College. And even before that, waiting and hoping and praying for a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit in our Presbyterian Church in Canada. We were on the edge of division and discord in the 80s, just as we are now. But along the way in my ministry, I had to accept that it wasn't going to happen while I was young in years and young in ministry. And it was even tougher to accept, and this is my monster ego at play, it was even tougher to accept that I wasn't going to lead it. A couple of months ago, Rebecca Jess told me that there was something brewing, mainly among her generation of ministers, led by people mostly who are a lot younger than me in years and in ministry people who will be leading and serving for a good while after I retire. So last week, reanimate happened, almost a year in the making, and the leadership includes people like Rebecca Jess and Jeffrey Crawford. So reanimate is not an organization that people are invited to join and set themselves apart from those who aren't part of it, but it is a movement, they say, drawn by God's spirit toward acts of courageous, inclusive, and creative ministry in the Presbyterian Church in Canada. What impresses me most is the hope, the enthusiasm, that so many of the leaders of my generation find so hard to hold on to. Reanimate is not a movement toward dividing our church. 
or taking the church back to an imagined past. Reanimate is about recognizing that God's love embraces everyone and embraces everyone in a circle that just keeps on getting wider and wider. If God's love embraces everyone, shouldn't the waiting expectant church? When I taught at the Atlantic School of Theology, faculty were interviewed one, one day for a purpose I've forgotten. But one of the questions was, what sustains our hope in today's church and world? Without hesitation, I said, my students. Now, most of them were serving in ministry while they studied. Some were young, many were older. But they were convinced that God had called them. And they were convinced that their call was to serve and lead in the church. And I could see through them that God was raising up a new generation of leaders and servants who were not content to sit and wait for the church as they had known it to die or to wait for God to come along and do something to bring it all to an end. And one thing we can expect while we are expecting is that we will see signs that the God who makes all things new is at work and invites us to take up our places in God's mission. Amen. Glory to God.